We like the book of Proverbs, so here's a proverb before we get into the message. Chapter 3, and I'm giving you three verses out of chapter 3, 19 and 20 and then 27. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. In verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. So we've been in a series um, where we've been studying the exceedingly great and precious promises of the Lord. And that's not my description of what God's promises are like. That's how God describes his own promises to us, exceedingly great and precious in Second Peter chapter 1. Over the last six weeks, we've been basically going over broad categories of promises. And um, each week I've taken a category and we've kind of dove in and, and studied through it. Um, and we've, des- we've described basically God's promises are basically an assurance that God gives to us so that we can walk in faith while we wait for him to work. And here's the thing. God's promises are not exceedingly great until you need them, right? You might hear the promise, but oh yeah, so-so, okay, whatever. But when you need it, it becomes exceedingly great. And, and they don't become precious until you need to put your full weight down upon them and find that they actually hold you up. That's what makes them exceedingly great and precious. Today we're going to wrap up the series and um, we're going to do a handful of exceedingly great and precious promises. But first, I want to give you a, let's do a 30,000-foot flyover of the promises that we've looked at in the previous six weeks. We'll spend a couple minutes on that. Um, promise number one. Now, the, the context for promise number one is that the children of Israel were just about to enter into the promised land, and they knew that they were going to have to face literal giants, and that they were going to have to face these big, perplexing, scary problems as they went in there. And God says, to them, says this to them in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. It wasn't enough that God wanted them to know that he was going to defeat their enemies for them. But but don't be afraid. Not not just just, don't be afraid of them, but I'll be with you as this goes on. It's going to work out fine. He will not leave you or forsake you. And of course, that particular promise, and in fact, that wording, you can find it many, many, many times in a lot of different places in, in the Bible. So the first, the first uh, category that we went over was, I will not fear because God is always with me. Jesus even said that to his disciples when he sent them out, you know, um, I'm going to be with you always till the end of the age. So God, God's with us. Now, that means more than this concept of omnipresence, that the Lord is present everywhere. This is talking about a characteristic that that as, as one of the, the Lord's children, there's a way that God is with you is, that's different than just omnipresence. You know, it's like when you're, when you're going through some hardship or some difficulty or you're tossing or you're turning and you're anxious and you're, you know, it's more than you can bear and you're heavy hearted. Um, there's a way that God just kind of rolls up his sleeves and saddles up next to you in a way and dis- displays himself and gets involved that's not like any other time. And it's not like what the world experiences with God. And regardless whether you see it or whether you feel it, it's true. God is with you. He's right there with you. In fact, um, Scripture actually tells us that not only is God with you, but Jesus is praying for you. That is, um, you know, Hebrews 7 says that Jesus lives to give give intercession for us. That's an incredible assertion that we find in Scripture, that, that, that Jesus Christ is not only with me, but he's actually praying for me and you. 
picture that for a minute. Jesus, and you know, you're, you're, you're concerned about what you're concerned about. And somewhere nearby, maybe in the next room, is the Lord in these long flowing robes and scarred hands on his knees talking to the Father about something on your behalf. Here's a rhetorical question for you about that. Scripture says he's praying for you. Here's the rhetorical question. Do you think that the Heavenly Father, that God in heaven above, hears and answers Jesus' prayers? <laughs> I think that's, it just makes me feel good. Jesus you know, already calling out to the Father on your behalf and mine. John Wesley, um, who was, uh, um, he founded the Methodist Church, and so he's a man of God from the seven, early 1700s. You know, he, he, he said on his deathbed, deathbed quote said, best of all. Now, he he was a man who had studied the entire book. This was a man who had traveled the world. He had seen a lot. I'm assuming chocolate is even in his... But he said, best of all, God is with us. This is what he said on his deathbed. Promise number one that um, we should receive that by faith is that God is with us. I will not fear God is with me. And you might think, okay, so he's with me, but it's kind of unraveling around here, and I really can't always see him. Promise number two, I will not doubt, because God is always in control. We need to remember that doubt has this characteristic, it kind of torches everything. Doubt just kind of just, you know, everything good that God wants to do in your life, if you doubt it, you know, maybe he loves me, maybe not. Maybe, maybe good things are coming my way, maybe they're not, you know. Um, you, I think the picture that comes to mind for me is this, um, you can read in the book of Judges about uh, a guy named Samson, and there's a story there where he takes a bunch of foxes and he tied torches to their tails, lit the torches and spooked them, and off they went through the fields, and you can imagine what happened. It caught all the fields. I mean, everything burned up. That's a great picture of what doubt does. Doubt is, creates this, like, this scorched earth in your heart, and it just, it just, everything God wants to do in your life just gets torched by doubt. So God assures us, assures us and he, he gives us promises in Romans 8.28 is the one that we parked on on this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. That's a great promise. All things work together for good. You know, if you're one of those people described, you love God and you're called according to his purposes, I'm not going to re-preach that message, but if that's you you, 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 you get up in the morning and, and before you start looking in the newspaper, whatever I read here, God's going to work it together for my good. You know, you turn on the news and there's this stuff that's going to come on the news. And I mean, I, I don't even turn the news on on, on, on Sunday mornings because it messes with my heart. And I want to come to you, you know, and do this with my heart optimistic. <laughs> and when I turn the news, I've learned that if the news comes on on Sunday morning, it ha if the TV's on on Sunday morning, it's got to be, you know, fixer-upper or something. <laughs> it cannot be news because if it's political or whatever, it just, it just starts putting my heart in a place that, I mean, I don't want to be there. And, and you know, I, I, but I could because I, could, I, I know this. Before I turn that TV on, whatever I hear... The Lord is working all things together for good. And, um, you know, here's the thing, though. God's idea of good for you might be a little bit different than your idea of good for you. I mean, <laughs> Scripture tells us that this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
And um, you can read that in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so God's will might not be for you to be you know, completely cozy right now. His will for you might not be today for you to have everything so secure in your life that you don't have to trust him. That may not be the Lord's will today. It may, it may not be that you get yourself all set up so that you can say to yourself, soul, I have laid up many goods for myself. I'll take my rest, eat, drink, and be merry. That particular quote it was, uh, comes out of the book of Luke, and, and, and there's a conversation there. And then Jesus says, ho, oh, ho. He says to the person who thinks that way, you fool. Your very soul may be required of you tonight. You know, so it's just, just cozy and secure um, is not always the Lord's will for us. Not because he's mean, but because of the good things he wants to do in our heart. But cozy and secure is kind of like embedded in our culture, right? I think when I, I don't know if, I don't hear this phrase too much anymore, the American dream, but the dream was to get yourself freed of all these outside pressures and restrictions so you could be me and live a life and, you know, whatever. And um, there's flowers in the fields in the morning and, you know, the sun set every night, you know, the American dream. And um, we have a culture that is shifting and there is, in our culture, an awful lot of just I don't have to just pride and arrogance and entitlement, especially when it comes to our financial situation. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. It wasn't that long ago, less than 10 years ago, that maybe you will recall this, that our nation's economy was about to crater. Do you remember that? Um, there had been all kinds of problems um, when the housing bubble, bubble collapsed and the banking challenges and all that stuff that goes on. And... Um, you know, our, our economy was in terrible peril, and that was just less, that was less than 10 years ago when that was the middle of that was going on, and we think we've recovered from that. Maybe we have. I don't know. I'm not an economist, um, but, but here's what I found when I started digging into that. Um, in one year alone, $8.5 trillion of value evaporated in mutual funds and stocks over than one year. Um, the stock market lost 25% of its value in 10 days. <laughs> you know, this, by the way, that was the, the crops and goods that, you know, pe- people were thinking that they had set aside many of them for their retirement. You know, this one thing to, to live through this when you're 30, it's a different thing to live through this when you're 40 or 50 or 60, and what you've worked for for your life you thought was stocked away and kind of multiplying to take care of you in your sunset, and then this happens. It is a big deal. Congress ended up giving away 900 billion dollars in bailouts to save banks and mortgages. I mean, it was a national challenge. And um, I don't know if you know this um, about our, our financial and the, and the, and the mar- markets, the stock markets and so forth. It's just, a, it's just a constant tug of war. And on the two sides pulling on the rope is fear and greed. There's just one rope. And it's greed, greed, greed versus fear, fear, fear. That is what our financial system is built upon. Not just in the United States, but the world. And, um, you know, it's like just one rope and they're pulling, pulling, pulling. And, and, and what was going on that has now been exposed was, you know, loan money to anybody who wants it, hide what the thing really truth is inside of something else and sell it off to some unsuspecting investor and you can do that and do that and do that until eventually it won't hold up under its own weight and it collapsed. The real problem there wasn't bad finances. It was, in my opinion, bad integrity. 
Um, but there's lots of problems there anyway. So all this greed, home values plummet, people are upside down in their mortgages. Maybe you experience this, maybe you know uh, people who experience this, but I know people who just were all of a sudden making payments on a house that was worth a couple hundred thousand less than the mortgage. It just was terrible. And now listen, don't get me wrong, I'm just like the rest of you. Almost everybody in America, unless you're Bill Gates, most of the rest of us, if you work at a company that provides a pension or a retirement or you're in one now, there are, it's getting rarer and rarer that you go to work for a company, you stay there for 40 or 45 years, and then they pay you a pension. Instead, if you work for a company, you're there for a season and another season, and maybe you take your 401k with you or your investments. You're investing in this market. That's where your money actually goes. And it's getting complicated today to figure out how do I protect my, how do I, how do I build an increase? And I'm, I'm not, this is not a financial class, but I'm demonstrating something here. And, and then there's the moral imperative. Where am I investing my money? What do those companies actually do with my money? Are they selling RU486? You know, I mean, are they, what are they doing with that money? I mean, there's the moral question that we don't know. It's, it's complicated. And we're placing our financial trust from day to day in, a, in basically what is a human construct that is driven by alternating motives of greed and fear. <laughs> Are you encouraged yet? <laughs> I mean, so um, this, this, like, this, this idea, how is all good things working together? Maybe it's good for a while, but then the unexpected happens and things outside of our control happen with the financial markets and, and economists themselves will tell you they don't really know how things work and what's going to happen. In fact, if you put two economists in the same room with the same facts, you have a very good chance that they're going to tell you opposite results. I was reading about this and I found one statement by a large trusted um, firm and here's what they say, they say about this whole topic. Economics is not an exact science, and often unforeseen influences may occur to derail the most successful forecaster of economic conditions. Those include unforeseen events, natural disasters, political upheaval, civil change, catastrophe, the X factor, the unknown and the unpredictable. George Bernard Shaw, playwright, said this. He said, if all economists were laid end to end, they would not reach a conclusion. <laughs> really? Really, there's only one person who can successfully manage our tomorrows. And that is the Lord our God. What better place to put your, your hope and your trust than in God? And in a God that is working, a, a God that's in charge, a God that is ruling and superintending the creation and the universe. But the scary question is, what if in our generation God wanted to judge America? You know, Billy Graham made a comment. He said, you know, if God does not judge America, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Amen. And so what if God wanted to judge our country? What, what if God wanted to bring us to times of leanness that we've never seen or really imagined as a country? Where will your faith be if that day comes? I really think that, th that, that will be a th there will be a thinning out um, in places, in, particularly in, in, in churches where they don't teach the Word of God. But we know what the, God says, the Word of God says that we're not going to doubt. 
We are not going to doubt. I will not doubt because God is always in control. God's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But not, all things are not working together for the good of those who love money or security or a life of ease. I'm not suggesting those things are bad, and I'm not suggesting the Lord won't give you those things. But if that's where your love is instead of God, you are not in the category of those that all things work together for your good. What an exceedingly great and precious promise that whatever I see in the newspaper, all good things, all things work together for good. Sometimes, sometimes though, even though we know this, we don't really like where the ship is headed. We're willing to get on the ship and pull on the oars and the Lord's on the rudder. We understand that. Okay, we, we trust that. But we don't really like where it's going and we can kind of start to feel. So the next promise comes up. I will not despair. God is always good. I'm not going to despair because whatever we're going, I know God is good. And Psalm 27:13 says this. I love this passage. I would have despaired. By the way, despair means that you are destitute of any positive expectations. You don't have any positive expectations. I would have despaired. This is the person who says, nothing I can see, nothing in front of me, the scattered pieces of my life, there is nothing here that tells me why I should hope anything good is going to happen to me. That's despair. By the way, Christians, no Christian has a reason to despair. No matter what's happening to you, because God has a future for you, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see, that I'm going to actually see it with my own eyes. It's good to hear about it, but I'm going to see it with my own eyes. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's here. That's not in the by and by. That's not when I get to heaven. I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord right here. Might not be today, but it will happen. Okay. Well, Terry, I get that, but I'm kind of losing it now. And that's not coming to me quick enough. The next category of promise is this. God says, I will not falter because God is always watching. I'm not going to falter. I'm not going to lose it. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Whatever you're facing, others have faced it before you. And after you get through it, there will be others who are facing it that will get through it too. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability <laughs> You may think you're at your limit, but you're not. God knows your limit, and he'll take you there. He'll, 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 he'll take you and care, carry you uh, when you think you're there. He protects you for more than you can handle. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you're able. He's not going to allow it. He will not allow it. And then with that temptation, he's going to make a way of escape. There's going to be an exit ramp. When you see it, go off. When you see that exit ramp, take the exit ramp. That way out. Whatever God's going to make it clear. Ask for wisdom. God will make it clear. Take the way out. The way of escape is coming. I will not falter because God is always watching. He's going to make a way of escape. And then the last one that we went was the last time, and I will not fail because God is always victorious. I get that there are going to be some battles that I'm not going to win, but in the end, I will win. I'll go down. You're going to knock me down, but I'm going to get back up. In fact, Proverbs 24 says, although a righteous man falls seven times, he'll still get up. God's always victorious. One of my absolute favorite verses is, as I say, a lot of these are favorites. I got a lot of favorites. You can have more than one favorite, okay? So Isaiah 54, 17 says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. What an awesome promise. 
No weapon formed against you will prosper. Even if it looks like it's prospering, God's, God's not done yet. And sadly, sometimes that weapon formed is a person, okay? And the verse goes on to say, And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Every person who tears you down, every person who sets out in opposition against you, every person who resists God's will in your life, someday, if they don't repent, this scripture says they will stand before the Lord and you personally will condemn them. I don't know how that works, but obviously here God takes it really, really seriously when somebody opposes and attacks one of his children. Now listen, this is not for you to condemn today. And this is not for you to wish upon anyone. This will be terrible. If they, don't, if, if they do not somehow before then get under God's mercy and his grace, God help them. And God is keeping a record of these things. And it's not going to go well for them on that day. I know when I read this, I think, <laughs> I don't really deserve that kind of protection, God, because this has been a weapon sometimes. I, I, I think that. Correct, Terry. You don't deserve this. And, but God says that my righteousness comes from him. Our righteousness comes from him. It's for God's glory. This isn't happening because I'm sort of a, some sort of a special character. I've got some sort of special qualities to me that the Lord wants. That's not it at all. This is because the Lord has decided to... to I'm one of his children. So he sets his love upon us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that, he would, that we should be called the children of God. First John Anyway, so that's where we've been for the last few weeks. Let's jump into a couple of new promises as we go here. That's a real quick overview of the last six weeks. And those messages, by the way, if you cared to dive deeper and you weren't here for them, they're on the website. They're free. Help yourself. Um, We'll make a CD if you want one, if you just ask out front. So today, something new. Joel 2.25. And here is the prophetic word of the Lord in the book of Joel. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Now, there is an amazing promise. The context here is that the children of Israel had been in so much rebellion for a season, for a long season against God, and um, you know they were, they were in sin. Their hearts were far from God. I mean, they had gone way off the reservation here, and, and they were just way out of the safe zone. They were gone. And God sovereignly chose to bring in some of the surrounding non, you know, they were heathen nations and used them to crush out of the children of Israel what he wanted there to be removed. I I read these stories and I've had this arrogant philosophy for most of my Christian life that, well, America is special. We stand for righteousness in the world and da-da-da-da-da. Stuff that, I, that maybe used to be true and that I wish was true today. But I, I ask myself the question, could God do that here? Could, could that happen to America? Would, would God bring other nations in here to, from other places in the world to absolutely reduce us to rubble? To bring us to our knees, to rid us of our arrogance? to remove from our land the, the, the blight of things that are celebrated every evening 
in our country on the nightly news? I mean, I don't know. But, but, but notice God's mercy even in that continues in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting. Fasting, by the way, is when you've, you're, you're pretty serious when you get there. You know, you've ever fasted? Fasting is, is, I don't want to teach that topic right now, but it's basically where you go without food for a season to heighten your hunger for the word of God, for the voice of God. It just, you know, Jesus, and, and, and in fact, there's a point where Jesus is on that topic and um, he, he said, regarding ministering to a person, he said, regarding certain bondages that would only come out by prayer and fasting. You read about that in Matthew 17. Anyway, um, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and, re- and rend your hearts and not your garments. The Jewish people would have, they would, they would have this display where they would tear their clothes and you know, when they were angry about something or upset about something or mourning or grieving. And over time, it became a symbol. It wasn't really a reality. And God's saying, you know, Rent, tear your hearts, not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? This is what God's people should be doing today. We ought to be returning to the Lord with all our heart. It's a theology lesson that we need, not an economics lesson. We need to return to the Lord with all our heart. Then in verse 18, he begins to lay out some pretty wonderful promises. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. And he starts laying out these promises. And this one is just fantastic. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. One of the plagues that you'll read about that God brought was... Um, he would send these, they're basically a variety of grasshoppers. Um, not all grasshoppers are locusts, but some, but, but all locusts are grasshoppers. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but there's a lot of kinds of grass, never mind. Okay. So, so the, the swarming locusts, <laughs> you know, I just slipped into nerd for a minute. We could, you know, Lisa has a rope she pulls on. Stop it. Stop being the nerd. Okay. So, but they would just come in and they would, they, they would just swarm the land. You know, they would devour everything of value. They would just, nothing would be left. The first ones would have a big feast and the second ones would push them forward and they would eat some more. And by the time the last ones got through, there was nothing but dust. And, and when that happens to a farmer, year one, it's terrible. Year two and year three. Notice he says, I will restore to you the years and I think some of us here in this room today think about what you worked for, what you saved for, maybe what you invested in in relationships has been eaten, and it's gone. It's gone. What now? What an incredible promise from God. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Well, how are you going to do that, Lord? Well, maybe he's going to allow me to be able to get by with less. Maybe he's going to give me back what I had. Maybe he's going to be blessing me in um, some future financial decisions I make. Um, But I believe that God can do that. I believe he can. I mean, this is an incredible promise. I believe that when we are going through a trial, 
We're not somehow wasting our time or losing territory or losing our tomorrows because when God's purposes are accomplished in us, including economically, he can restore everything to us, everything. God can do that. God has do that. God will do that. So what should I be doing to, uh, about this? What should I be doing about devouring locusts, Terry? Fair question. Because I think probably there's not very many of you in this room that are really concerned that grasshoppers are going to get in your house and eat your, eat, eat your cookies. Okay? Um, it's, 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 the locusts are more than just grasshoppers. Okay? And we'll get to that in a minute. But there are lots of things in this world that devour us and devour relationships and devour resources. Lots of things. So what should I, do, what, what should I be doing about this, this devouring locust? Okay, I want you to know, before I got to this next little section here we're in, I spent a lot of time just listening to what I think the Lord would say to us. And I, and so I'm going to give you four things that I think we should be doing. Number one, these should be days of obedience. Um, to do this, I'm going to maybe make a little illustration. Um, I don't want to ask her to come up or embarrass my wife or anything, but, um, you know, Lisa and I are partners in every sense that I can think, and I'm trying to be a better partner my entire life with her, and we're growing in that. And we, 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 we live life together. We pray together. We make decisions together. We live with the consequences of those decisions together. We're up together. We're down together. We're facing things together. I mean, we're not together all the time, but probably more than the typical couple, I would think. I can't stand to not be with my wife. And, um, uh, you know, I, I thank God because he knew what he was doing when he, you know, gave me my wife. And um, I, very similarly, you remember that the idea of a marriage, it's a representation of our relationship with God. We need to be in a partnership with God where you make decisions together, where you pray together, where you talk together, where you live with your consequences together, where you trust together, where you walk in faith together, where you do things that are together. And I think about that. And that includes, when I talked about all the finances and so forth, we need to be in a financial partnership with God. You could not have picked a worse time to not be in partnership with God financially. You need to be in partnership with God. And I, I, I'm going to just talk about this for a minute. I am grateful and thankful for the very many of you faithful. We have a good church full of faithful, generous people who give their tithes and their offerings at the church here. Um, and for people who tithe, and, and that is just a settled issue in their heart, when a financial hardship comes, it's just something that happens. It doesn't rattle them to the core because they've already settled this deal with God. Okay, Lord, um, here's how this works. I've I'm doing what you asked to do, and I'm putting my faith in you. This is up to you to resolve. My part is obedience and, uh, and faith. And, and, and so, okay, whatever's going on around here, God's going to take care of us. That's the attitude of people who, who have learned and have submitted their heart and their, their wallet to the, the concept of tithing. But, but there are people who have their tithes and offerings at their house instead of at God's house. And, okay, so this topic of locusts is right here in this passage in Malachi 3. It's right here, verse, starting in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. 
But you say, in what way have we robbed you, God? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. He's saying not only you, but the whole, this whole country is kind of messed up. Bring all the tithes. The word all is in there because the people then were tipping God. Here's a tip, God. <laughs> Don't tip God. He's not your waiter. Okay? I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse here is the local place where they would go and learn the word of God. It's your local church. It's, it's here. If this is your church, this is your storehouse. And he's talking about tithes and offerings. You know, the offering is different than the tithe. The tithe is the tenth. It's the first part. It belongs to God. The offering is, hey, um, I'm going to give this to this organization who helps lost cats. <laughs> okay, so some of you wouldn't give to that particular charity. Anyway, that's an offering. Giving groceries to Uncle Bill because he's sick and he can't work, and that's an offering, okay? That's where you give because you've, it's on your heart. The tithe is what you give to the Lord, and you don't give it with strings. You just say, God, this is yours. This is you bring it to your, your torta, that, the storehouse. That's what the scripture says. He says, bring all the tithes um, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open, see if I'm not going to open the windows of heaven, heaven and pour out for you so much blessing that there won't be room enough to receive it. And then we get to the really cool part of this. That's good. That was really good right there. But verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Here's how the devourer works that's not grasshoppers trying to eat your cookies. The devourer, this is a spiritual enemy that we have who sees your resources and says, you know what? And click, breaks a little gear in your transmission. Or you bite down on a ham sandwich and what you thought was ham was something else and now you got a broken filling and you're burning your money on something that you, you know, you want to get that really cool new Nintendo game but instead you're paying a dentist to fix your tooth. The devourer. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. When you work hard and you deserve that raise and that promotion, and the devourer says, don't give it. He says to the decision maker, whispers in it, don't, don't give this guy a raise. Don't give her this promotion. He's going to rebuke the devourer. You be quiet. And you're going to get the, the fruit from your investment and your vine, says the Lord of hosts. Well, the man around God, you know, so I think some people say, well, you know, I just, I just haven't figured this out. Figure it out. You want to be in a place of obedience in this part of your life. You, you don't want to be wondering whether or not you can trust God. Now, having said all that, I just want to tell you right now, Crossroads Church is healthy financially. We are healthier. I'm not bringing this to you because I need to fix the church. I'm bringing this to you for you, for you. The Lord has given us leaders here who uh, regularly review where the dollars come and go and um, how appropriate it is. And th th there's people that, smart people that do that, wise, godly people that review those things. I don't really um, watch a whole lot the day-to-day -day operations. There's other people, godly people that do that kind of stuff. And I, I know these people and I trust them in their hearts. Their hearts are for Jesus their hearts are for people, their hearts are for children, their hearts are for ministry. It's just, okay. So the appeal here is not to fix the church. The appeal here is for you. 
These are not days to not be in partnership with God. If you, if you have God's money at your house, you should get over there and get it and get it to God. You know, you know get it out of your hands because you want to be in partnership with him. I've said this before, 90% with God is way more than 100% with you alone because that's where you are if you're not tithing. You are there alone with your 100%. And when the devourer sees, oh, not under God's covering, not under God's protection financially, it's fair game. I am certain, I don't have any math to prove this, but I am certain that people who don't tithe lose, they give up way more than 10% to the devourer. It just happens. Beyond that, there's peace issues. So can you really afford to be on your own? Is there ever a better time to be in partnership with God? I just don't think so. So these are days of obedience too. These are, these are days of faith. 2 Corinthians 9, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you. You know, God can give you a deal in your office that nobody else is getting. He, he can give you a bid for a construction job that nobody else is getting. He, he, he's able to make all grace abound towards you. He'll give you a new piece of business. He'll give you a new client. He'll give you, you know, he'll get you out of a situation you are in and get you into a better one that would never have happened. He's able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance of e- for every good work. By the way, that's why we have an abundance, it says right there, for every good work. So these are days of obedience. These are days of faith. Number three, these are days of repentance. You know, since I've spent this time on tithing, if, if, if not been true to the Lord of my finances, need to get it figured out. Well, okay, I get this question. Do I do it off the gross or the net? Here's your answer. Get started. Just get started. Try me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that won't be contained. Because God wants both your faith and your obedience on this topic. He wants both faith and obedience. And then Paul, Paul, was, Paul said this in Philippians 4. It's interesting. He said, I know how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He's saying, I can have a lot or I can have nothing. He's what he's saying here. And then he says, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is a famous, often quoted verse, but most of the time it's not quoted in this particular context, in the context at which it was written. This is him saying, you know, this, 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 I can be a joyful Christian whether I have a lot or whether I got little. That's what he's saying here. So these are days of obedience, faith, and repentance. Okay, so... If you're not right with God in your finances or if you're not right in some area, repent of it, ask God to forgive you, and make it right, whatever that is. Number four, these are days of contentment. Continue that whole passage, or in the middle of that passage, verse 11, it says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That's so hard to do. You're in the middle of a trial and you're thinking, God, what's the deal? This does not look like it's working together for my good. Seems like I'm giving up yardage here. Anybody here who has ever watched or played or coached football knows that there are times that you give up yardage. But that's not the game. Right, coach? There's coaches in here. One of our coaches is watching over you and me right now. You know, we have staff, we have team that watches over and protects the the church, so, okay, never mind. (laughs) Anyway, so, um, lost my place. Anyway, so God's not wasting our time. 
And I think there, the, 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 there is something divine maybe about the circumstances that you're in when you can walk with God and trust him completely and put the kingdom first and expect his blessing. Don't doubt in darkness the things that the Lord has shown you in the light. Darkness will want to snuff out things and cause doubt. At the right time, he can restore what the years of the locusts have eaten. He can put it back and more. So that's the promise. Okay, so the promise there is I can be confident in him. God's going to restore. Another category of promise talks about our sufficiency. And um, this, this is the, the point here is I am strong in the Lord. That's where I'm strong. I'm not strong in my bank account. I'm not strong in my budget or my wisdom or my planning. I thank God for all those things that are important. We shouldn't minimize them. But I am strong in the Lord. Paul talks about how he had this thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. So, so he's talking about this thorn in the flesh. Nobody knows what it was, but he has this issue. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might not depart from me. And he said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We do not want to hear that answer. We don't. <laughs> We don't want to hear it. But let me, just by God's grace, speak that to your spirit right now. You know, and right into your life, right off the pages of God's word into your life. My grace, God says, is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for you. And God's strength is made perfect in your weakness. Let that get into your soul. I don't want to go through this, through this anymore, God. I don't want to deal with this. Would you take it away? We've talked about it over and over again. Take it away, God. Fix my company, God. They don't know what they're doing down there. It's going to, it's going to go under. And the Lord comes back with something like, well, you know, Terry, we're going to, we're going to let this go another week. We got, we got some more time here um, because my power is perfected in your weakness and um, my grace is going to be enough for you. I know this is going to be hard, Terry, but you just hold on. We'll get through this together. My grace here will carry you. It's going to be sufficient. I'll be right there with you. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is going to be made perfect in your weakness. You're going to learn things, Terry, about my strength that... You would never learn with only the sun shining. There are some things about me that you're going to learn that you would never learn if I didn't cause the cloud to go in front of the sun for a season. We don't want to hear that. God's strength is perfect in our weakness. I'm strong, and God is sufficient. Lisa and I are um, like you. We got a lot of stuff going on in our lives, and We've been praying about a lot of things recently, and um, you know some of them they've added up to quite a lot. I'm not here to get you to feel sorry for me. I just you know we've been under it, and um, um, you know I fell down and hurt my knee, and we've been there's a lot of stuff going on. Okay, at a personal level, and at a financial level, and at a you know spiritual level, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And I was kind of whining to God the other day and saying, you know, God. You know that thing about the yoke and the burden? I could, could you lift a little bit here? Because I'm feeling it. I mean, 
I'm not that curt, but I'm that transparent with God, and you should be too. Not to follow me. I'm just saying, I, God wants you, your authentic, real heart feelings. God, would you lift, please? <laughs> and um, Lisa, Lisa has an app on her phone, and it's called the Verse of the Day. I have no idea what it is, but it pops in about dinner time for some reason, which is nice, because I'm not on my phone at five in the morning. Anyway, so actually I am. But anyway, so, um, so she says to me, hey, you know, and here's the thing about the verse of the day. It might just be a verse of the day, but so often, so often, it's so tailored to whatever hole I think I'm in that it's like a ladder dropping down or an elevator dropping down. And um, so she says, hey, you want to hear the verse of the day? I'd been whining to God about him lifting something up and just dealing with the things I was dealing with. And um, she reads this, this out, of, out of Exodus. So here's the context. Um, the, the children of Israel are on the run, and the Egyptian army is bearing down on them. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That is so not me. <laughs> I cannot be still. We go on family vacations, and as soon as we arrive, I want to get up and go somewhere. I just want to be somewhere besides here. It makes no sense. Lisa says, I want to go sit by the pool. I said, what a waste of time. We could be, we could be getting tired somewhere doing something. Anyway. <laughs> the, the follow-up, you know, that whole situation, Moses encouraged these people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. God wants you to experience his sufficient grace. He, he wants you to come <laughs> to the total end of yourself where your heart is saying, I just don't have it, God. I don't have it. I don't have it another day. I don't have it for another week. I just don't have it, God. I love my granddaughters. Um, I'm a mess about them. There are three little girls at different ages. One, one okay, Bella is right in the Annabelle. You would know her as Annabelle. Um, she's the middle age, and so Grace has grown to the point where she's a little girl now, and um, she went through this stage. Um, Tessa is an infant, and so when she sees her feet, she's surprised. She sees she'd be visited by somebody, and she starts giggling. <laughs> Bella is at the point where um, that you moms will get this, and dads should too, um, where if you get her just tired enough, she'll want to crawl up and tuck her head and just kind of this limp... Do you know what I'm talking about? Whoops. I mean, when that moment comes, I don't care if it's the last two minutes of the Super Bowl. I don't care anymore. I was at Rachel's house the other day and um, had a, was tired. I was doing some stuff. And um, I, I got there, and I didn't really have enough energy to play with the little girls. And they were pretty tired, too. And I laid down on the sofa. Lisa was babysitting the kids. And... Um, for some reason, I'm laying there. I'm just kind of spent. And Bella, who is the middle daughter, um, middle, the middle granddaughter, um, she just calls, cl climbs up and lays on top of me and sticks her head right there. And she's just, <sighs> that's what God wants. God wants you to know his sufficiency, his grace, his grace. He wants you to be where you open your heart, where you pour your heart out to him. He's going to meet you there. He's going to meet you there. And he wants you to test his promises. 
He wants you to walk out on it like it's that ice I talked about last week. He wants you to put your full weight down on his, on his promises, and there will not be a crack. You're not going to hear a crack. These promises, exceedingly great and precious. I'm strong in the Lord. Psalm 62, 8 says this, says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge in, 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 for us. I'm strong in the Lord. You know, and I, I know that many times we kind of have to muscle up and press forward and we're being strong in the Lord. You might be thinking, you know, Terry, but I got some real decisions to make and some battles to fight. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is the kind of weapon that the scripture is talking about that always wins. It's not of the flesh. So we face some sort of conflict in life or a problem to deal with, some giant we're facing that we got to battle. So we grab for a weapon, right? We grab for a weapon. And sometimes God says, be still. I'm going to fight this for you. And other times he says, pick up a sling and kill the giant with a stone, Right? And so if you want to win that battle, you've got to have the right weapon in your hand. Here are, are, are just a few weapons of the flesh that God says they don't win the battle, okay? One, anger. I'm going to set them straight, you know. I'm going to show them who's boss. I'm going to put them in their place. James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let me slow down and say that again. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. James 1.20. Ice cream card. <laughs> when, when anger becomes weaponized, it's the flesh. So here's another weapon of the flesh, my determination. You know, you're not going to stop me, and I'm not going to stop talking about this. Okay. Another weapon of the flesh is my wisdom. You know, I've read every financial book. I bought gold and buried it in the backyard because out of the ground it came and that's where it belongs. Okay, Those are weapons of the flesh. Determination, wisdom. Even anger when it's for the right reasons and at the right temperature are good. Those are good characteristics. But, but there's a whole different category of weapons and that kind of weapon always wins. It always wins. Notice in the text, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. They win. That's the weapon you want. You know, the one with God's backing on it. And you find yourself facing things. I can't take this giant on by myself. You get to pick up one of God's weapons. Okay. And that verse, and in that verse, that word stronghold, that's a spiritual warfare term. Okay, that's a spiritual word. It's, it's, it's sometimes we're up against things that, that are sourced by the God of this world. Sometimes we're up against things that are driven by satanic involvement, the enemy of our souls. And you're just not going to take that stronghold down with the weapons of your flesh. They won't work. When our enemy sets his sights on you, or he sets his sights on your marriage or your children or your finances or, or your, your business, you don't have the weapons personally. You don't have the weapons to take that down. You better get strong in your spirit. So we're, we're about done here. I'm going to wrap this up real fast. So I'm going to go click, 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 and we're going to pray. 
I'm just going to give you the list. I'm not going to teach these things. I'll tell you where to look later, okay? So the weapons of our warfare, here they come in a quick list. And now God lists these. You can study these in Ephesians 6 and other places, but this is the order God put them in. Decide whether he's, he got the order right or not. I don't know. First one is truth. It starts with truth. Second one, righteousness. Not my righteousness, but the righteousness that I have because of Christ, right? Number three, the gospel of peace. Faith. Your salvation. The word of God. These are spiritual weapons that always win. Praying under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Alertness and, and perseverance. Now, I'm going to give you one more. Um, and it's not from Ephesians 6, but there's a description in um, the Gospel of John that, that describes the way Jesus decided to come equipped to the earth. John 1.14 says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So grace, I'm going to stick that up as also a number one on the list. Okay. I, I, by the way, about grace, Christians, people in our culture don't give grace anymore. Christians need to seed the culture with grace. You have interactions with other Christians and you have interactions with other non-Christians. Seed those situations with grace. I'm encouraging you to do that. Just do it. Seed, them, seed those interactions with mercy. The Lord will show you. The Lord will show you. Okay, the last promise, we're not going to study this one at all. I'm going to li list it and we're done. And that's hope. We have hope. You can study this. Here's a place to start this in Revelation 21.4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. That sounds really good. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, first thing I would ask you to do is come quickly. Just come quickly, Lord. I'm grateful, God, that you are a God who is a promiser. Your word is full of so many promises. And God, that you are a God who keeps your promises. You, know, you don't just promise, but you keep the promises. And that you want us to test those promises. And that your heart for us is nothing more than to build us and to bless us and to care for us and, and to nurture us. Lord, I pray, God, that we as a church would become people who know how to rightly divide the word of truth, people who know how to get into your word and understand it and find your promises that speak to our circumstances. May we grow in that and not only be able to find them for ourselves, but be able to feed them around us to the other people who need an encouraging word from you. Lord, so give us assurances. They're the personally tailored, perfect thing that we would need to hear in any circumstance. And God, call people to salvation. Scripture tells us that no one can get saved unless the Spirit draws them. Draw them, Lord, we pray. There are people probably sitting here today who do not have eternity resolved with you. Call them, Lord. Let your Spirit say, isn't it time? Isn't it time that you squared away eternity? Isn't it time that you acknowledge that I am God and you are not? Isn't it time that you acknowledge that I love you and have a plan for you? Isn't it time that you acknowledge your efforts of being a good person are nice, but they're not good enough. That's a form of self-worship. Isn't it time you stopped worshiping everything except me and choose to make me be your God and your Savior? Tell that to people, Lord, I pray. Tell that to people in a language that their heart can hear. 
And now in this moment, while our eyes are closed, I, I just, keep your eyes closed, please. Um, I just would encourage every person here who has been hearing that from the Holy Spirit, you've been hearing God speak to you in the last moments about squaring away your eternity and you'd like to be right with God and you're willing to make that decision this moment and say, I want to be right with God. I know I need God in my life. I know I can't save myself. I have no control over going to heaven and I want that. So I'm willing to let Jesus Christ be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, make that decision right now. That's a simple decision where you yield. And what will happen is the Holy Spirit over the next hours, days, and weeks will start to speak to you and lead you in his ways. That's all it is. While eyes are closed, if you want to do that, I just want to pray with you and agree, and I won't embarrass you, I promise. But I would like to do that. I'm looking around. If you want to open your heart to the Lord, would you just give me a little look or a hand wave or both? Okay. Eternity. Lord, I want to thank you for our room full of so many people who already know you. Lord, let something of the truth and the hope that's present in your promises fill us with life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, church,